Church family, would you join me in prayer as we enter into this time where we do have an opportunity to hear from the Word of God. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to us, Lord. We want to humble ourselves this morning as we, as we like to do before this time, Lord. We know that we come in with our own thoughts, we come in with our own opinions, but in everything, Lord, we, we humble ourselves realizing that we are, we are created, we are not the Creator. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to every single person in this room. I thank you that, again, just like Mike said earlier, there's no one that is here by chance that you have, have brought each person to this place for a reason. And so I pray that this morning as we come and we encounter your word, just as we have encountered you through our singing, Lord, but now that as we read and as we study together, that you would move in our hearts, God, that you would move us not just to hear, but to respond in obedience, to respond to be changed. We pray that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, worship team. If you have a Bible, I'll ask you to go ahead and grab it. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can grab one in the pew in front of you or the seat in front of you. A couple weeks ago, we were at the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Today, I'm going to have you go the exact opposite direction, okay? All the way, Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible. We're trying to keep it easy for you guys, either the end or the beginning. Genesis 1. Today, we are starting a new short sermon series called By His Design. And what we're going to be looking at over the next four weeks is what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman through the lens of Scripture. How has God designed man and woman? How has God designed us in the same? How has God designed us to be different? What is his overarching purpose in his design? These are some of the questions that we're going to invite God's word to shed light on in this sermon series. Now, we felt like the reason we needed to talk about this subject is that the answers to those questions that we are receiving from the culture around us are constantly changing. It's creating conflict. It's creating confusion. In fact, those questions are being answered right now differently than they ever have been in the history of humanity. Some will tell you there are no differences, that gender, male, female is just a social construct, that that there is no design to the differences in being a man or a woman. Some will come along and and point to the stereotypes of, of what it means to be a man or a woman, and yet even those are conflicting messages, aren't they? Uh, You'll have one person that says, in order to be a man, you have to grow a really good beard and be able to cut down trees. While at the next moment, someone comes along and says, no, to be a real man, you have to be able to order a kale salad with confidence, right? You have to be an emotionally supportive partner. To be a woman, you have to be this way. To be a woman, you have to be that way. Which one is it? There's a confusion surrounding gender in our culture. Now, I'm about to give you an example of the changes that have taken place in our culture regarding gender. But before I do so, I want to say something very, very important, church family. For many of us in this room, even the example that I'm about to give may seem absurd. But you need to know that there are others in this room and very much people all around us in our jobs, and our schools, for whom this struggle is a very, very real struggle. If the church must be anything, and I do not want you to miss this, if the church must be anything, it must be a safe place for the gender confused and the sexually broken. You need to hear that. 
If we are not a safe place, what that reveals is that we don't really believe our message. That we are all broken. That we are all in need of God's salvation. That we are all in need of his grace. And that there are no struggles outside the reach of God's powerful hand. You see, here's what's going to happen when the current gender and sexual revolution that's taking place in our culture, when all those promises that are made are shown to be unfulfilled, when they're shown to be the frauds that they are, we as the church need to be the place of open arms saying, come brokenhearted, come and find what Jesus has to offer you. Do you understand what I'm saying, church family? This matters. There are many examples of the change in our culture that I could point to, literally. I mean, they're happening every single day in our city, all around our world. But there's one that as I was listening to a sermon uh, probably a year ago by another guy named Matt Chandler, he gave this illustration, I think is a great summary of the changes in our culture regarding culture and gender. Many of you have probably heard of Mount Holyoke College, which is a historic all-women's college in the Northeast. At, what t- at one time, all the Ivy Leagues only consisted of men. And so there were these seven schools, and this was the first one started called the Seven Sisters that, that became a platform for, for educating women and help them to, to grow in their giftings and in their understanding. Well, Mount Holyoke, just a couple years ago, came out with new admission standards to show how progressive that they had become. And I'm just going to read to you from that document that is outlining those changes. It says this, Mount Holyoke College welcomes applications for our undergraduate program from any qualified student who is female or identifies as a woman. The college values each student's development both academically and personally and recognizes that self-identity may change over time. Now, you say, what does that mean? Well, they go on to spell it out very clearly. They say this, the following academically qualified students may now apply for admission consideration. Number one, biologically born female identifies as a woman. Two, biologically born female identifies as a man. Three, biologically born female identifies as other or they. Four, biologically born female does not identify as either man or woman. Five, biologically born male identifies as woman. And finally, number six, biologically born male identifies as other or they when other or they includes woman. Now, what that means is there is now only one person that cannot go to Mount Holyoke College. And that is someone born biologically male that identifies only as male. You say, well, what happens when somebody changes their mind? Well, they have you covered. They say this, if a student during their four years decides to change her mind and chooses a male gender identity, will she need to withdraw? No. Once students are admitted, the college supports them regardless of their sex or gender identity. Now, church, I give you this example just as one example. And there are many. You could look in our schools. You could look all around us just to say this, that change has come and change is will continue to come in this area revolving revolving around gender. The question becomes in this shifting sands, how are we as God's people to, to look at gender? How are we to look at being male and female and what that actually means for us? Well, I would say this, if we have any hope of having a worthy foundation of how we are to see these changes, it has to begin in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1.1 says these words, if you would, look at it with me. It says this sentence, In the beginning, God created 
the heavens and the earth. You see, these 10 words make up what is likely the most important sentence ever written because in that one sentence is the foundation for all the answers that we seek most. Who am I? Why am I here? How does all this work? If only God is creator, then what that means is only God has the answers that we seek for these questions. You and I can sit here all day long and debate What is man? What is woman? What should man do? What should woman do? We can debate that all day long, but you know what? That would only be our opinions. God is the authority on this subject, not us. He knows how humans are meant to flourish. He knows what will bring about human flourishing, not us. It's kind of like this building project that we've been undergoing. Uh, Our church, if you're new, we've been in a building project almost for a year now. We were coming literally to the final days for which I think we can all be grateful But in this building project, there have been many moments where I've been walking around, which is probably something I shouldn't be doing in the middle of a building project. I've been looking at things, and there have been many moments where I've seen something and said, that's not right. This isn't done in the right order. Something's missing here. Something's gone wrong. And so I'll barge into our little architect meetings with our whole team, and I'll say, hey, did you see this? This is wrong. Thinking, I know how this building project must go. What happens? Almost every time the architect... The guy that has designed the whole thing, the guy that has the big picture in the mind, he sits me down, he calms me down, and then he says, Ryan, actually, you're wrong. Here's here's the way that it's meant to go. This is why it's done that way. This is why the order is done that way. He's the architect. Well, friends, God is not merely the architect. God is the designer. He is the creator. By his very voice, chapter 1, verse 1 says, He spoke all things into existence which means he and he alone knows how we are to flourish. In the midst of all his creation, Genesis 1 shows us one important truth, and that is this, that humanity, male, female, we are created, and we are the literally crown jewel of his creation. You see this throughout the scriptures, and, and that's not, even, if, even if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, that's probably not hard for you to understand. It's probably not hard for you to believe that that we as humanity, male and female, were created with worth and dignity that is not shared by anything else in creation. Uh, Consider for a moment my family, my immediate family. I've had the privilege of being married to an amazing woman, uh, Rachel, for the last 11 years this month. Very exciting to celebrate that anniversary. Yeah, go Rachel. She deserves a hand clap. We have three kids. I have a seven-year-old son, I have a four-year-old daughter, and I have a two-year-old daughter. In our family, we also have three fish. Uh, we, have, we have Luke, which stands for Luke Skywalker. It's very short. We have Darth two because Darth one died. And we have Bryson, okay? That's my family. That's who lives in our home. Now, consider for a moment that our family gets in a financial pinch. Uh, we don't have the money. The bills aren't being met. Who in our family do you think is going to be the first to go? Now, even if you're not a Christian, even if you know nothing about what the Bible says about humanity, I don't think anybody in this room says, Rachel, Rachel's got to go, right? If we were just looking at this from a math equation, I can tell you this, Rachel cost our family a lot more than Bryson, Luke, and Darth, okay? We also don't look at this equation and say, who's easiest to take care of? Again, those fish, much easier to care for than our two-year-old daughter. It's easy. Those fish are going to go. Why? Because we as humanity, 
are created with a worth and a dignity and honor that nothing else in creation has. You see this concept in the book of Genesis 1 and starting in verse 24. So if you would, go ahead and look with me starting in verse 24. The word of God says these words. It says, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. But then the last thing God creates, verse 27 or 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the flesh of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then finally, look at verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. You see, in this text, we find what theologians throughout the years have called the Imago Dei. The image of God. This idea that man and women share something that separates them from the rest of creation. While all of creation, you look at the other five days, while all the rest of creation is good, when God looks upon man made in his image, what does he say? It is very good. Why? Because they are made in his likeness. The question then becomes, what does this mean? What does it mean that both male and female, men and women are made in the image of God? Well, I think it's important that you kind of see this in two ways. To be made in the image of God means that we are to do two things, that we are to reflect God and that we are to represent him. Reflect and represent. Each person, each human being is made to do those two things. When we talk about reflection, here's kind of the picture. Imagine that an artist comes in here. He's a very gifted artist or she's a very gifted artist. And and they begin to draw an incredible portrait of you. What happens throughout the centuries, if anybody wants to know what you're like, all they have to do is look at this painting that's a mere reflection of you. And yet, by looking at it, they get an idea of what you looked like. Well, God says something very similar in this passage. He says this, I have created humanity to reflect my glory. I've created humanity, men and women, to reflect my character, to reflect my goodness, to reflect my beauty, my love, my holiness, my patience. I have reflected humanity to reflect me. That's why I've created them. They're like, we're like a mirror. When we're in right relationship with God, we, we are a mirror of God to the rest of creation. They see him through us. Well, not only, though, are we a reflection, but we're also his representatives, in the ancient Near East, when a time when this would have been first read, there were authorities who ruled over distant lands. And these authorities, what they would do is they'd create a statue, what was known as an icon, and it would re- resemble their, their rule, their reign, and they'd put it in those distant lands so that no one forgets there is a king who is ruling and reigning over this land. Well, when you think about what it means that we are made in the image of God, that's what he's saying. He's saying, you, humanity, are those icons You're the perpetual reminder to all of creation that there is a creator who is ruling and reigning. 
And in the way that we live out what he's called us to do, we're to be his representatives. We reflect and we represent God. Now, how does this actually come out practically? What is this? What's the significance of this? Well, I want to mention in this morning as we start this sermon series, three key ways that this is important. This idea that we are made in his image. As, as image bearers, we are, have three things. And this is the first one. We have a very unique relationship with God. We have a unique relationship with God. Because we are made in his image, what that says is that we have the capacity to actually know and seek and understand the God who has created us. That's different than any other of his creation. Uh, as an example, um, there's going to be a picture. I think you'll just be able to see it on the sides. Hopefully you can see it. But there's going to be a picture of Augie, which is the Geiki's newest puppy, okay? Their newest family member. Augie's a beautiful creature, a beautiful dog. Now, there are some similarities that, that I share with Augie as created. Augie is a male. I am a male, right? Augie loves to sleep and eat. I love to sleep and eat. Augie has brown eyes. I have brown eyes. Augie's a little bit hairy. I too am a little bit hairy. We have similarities. But when you look at any animal, including Augie, including your cat, including horses, anything in all of creation, you look at anything else in all of nature, the differences between me and Augie are vast. Why? The main one being, I have a relationship with God. Being made in his image, we are created for this relationship that nothing else in creation shares. Augie is not burdened for the souls of the other dogs in San Francisco. Augie doesn't stay up at night praying for the, the, the needs of, of the people around him. Augie, when Augie sins, does not repent. He, does, he doesn't sit there three days later thinking, man, I wish I wouldn't have peed on their rug. Right? <laughs> Humans, because we are made in his image, we, we have a capacity, a moral capacity, a relational capacity to know God, our creator. And that makes us unique in all of creation. It gives us much worth and value. But secondly, not only are we different in that we can have a relationship with God, but we also have a unique relationship with the rest of creation. We're different than the rest of creation. We're going to likely get into this in the next couple of weeks, but... You'll notice in that text that as his image bearers, what does he say? That we are called to, to exercise dominion over the rest of creation. That we're to fill the earth, we're to multiply, we're to subdue the earth. Now, some people get scared about that language, dominion. They think, well, that, does that mean that we're just to come in and trample on the earth to use it for all of our selfish desires? No. What God is saying about the nature around us is this, that we as his representatives are to be stewards of his creation. Why? In such a way that humans can flourish and ultimately that God can be glorified. You know, it's interesting in our city, people wonder, is, is God, does he care about environmentalism? Well, I would say in this text, what we see is the answer is yes. Where environmentalism means that we are stewarding God's creation for the, the betterment of the people around us and in a way that glorifies God, then yes, God cares about environmentalism. But here's the thing, where environmentalism goes astray, it's where we begin to worship the creation more than we actually worship the creator. God calls us to be stewards of creation. We're to exercise dominion. We're to, to go into chaos and create order. That's what we are called to do as his image bearers. We have a unique relationship with nature. 
But finally, and this is really where we're going to spend our time this morning. We have a unique relationship with one another. Not only a relationship with God, not only with the rest of creation, but we have a unique relationship with one another. In other words, what I'm saying is this. There are things that non-humans do to one another that is not acceptable for us to do to one another. Uh, Maybe you've gone on social media lately and you've seen a, a video of a lion devouring another lion or a great white shark just taking out a sea lion. When that happens, we don't look at that and say, well, this needs an investigation. We need to look into this. It doesn't make headline news. We don't try to put them in solitary confinement in Monterey Bay Aquarium. We don't do those things. But with humans, one human kills another. That matters, right? It's different. That's why Genesis 9 says these words. God gives this word. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Because we are made in the image of God, each one of us has immense value. Each one of us has immeasurable worth. This is one way that men and women are 100% the same. They are equally valuable to God. I wonder this morning, do you know this about yourself? Do you realize that you are utterly valuable to God? The Bible says no matter who you are or where you're from, no matter what your record is, no matter how low you've gone, you have immense worth for the sole reason that you were created by God in his image. You were made to reflect God. You have immeasurable worth. I'm afraid one of the main issues in our day, and I think Mike kind of hit on this last week, was that we are trying to pull all of our worth from all of these different things in life instead of allowing our worth to come from the reflection of a very worthy God. Instead of getting our worth from relationship with God, we try and we try to pick and choose. If I can get some worth from this accomplishment, or if I can go and get some, some worth from, from this transaction, or if I can go and get it from this success, or from this relationship, or from sex, or whatever it is we pull and we grab for worth. Friends, I'm just telling you, if you grab worth from anything other than your relationship with God, you're always going to be on sinking sand. You'll never have that worth that you so desire. But as Christians... Because of this doctrine of the image of God, we can say to people with complete genuineness, with complete confidence, God does not make junk. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how low you've gone, you are valuable to him, period. Here's another question for you this morning, and this is one that God has been dealing with my own heart this week. When you are going out in this city, when you're at your school, when you're at your workplace, do you see and treat people as if they were image bearers of our God? That person that you're sitting next to on BART or Muni, that person that's holding up the line at the grocery store, that, that person that you walk by on the street, What we find in this passage is that no matter what gender you are, no matter how torn your clothing is or how smelly you are, no matter what the color of your skin, no matter what kind of education or upbringing you have had, every person you encounter bears the image of our God. They are utterly valuable. It's interesting, in this city that tries to get rid of God in almost every way, At the same time, they want to talk about human worth and value and upholding the dignity of people. Something our city is known for. 
But friends, do you realize that if you take God out of the equation, if you take what he has said about us out of the equation, there are no grounds for human worth or dignity. Neither secularism nor scientific reasoning can ultimately ascribe humans worth or dignity. If you don't believe me, listen to this statement by the non-Christian philosopher Bertrand Russell. He says this, he says, We are the product of causes that had no prevision of the end they were achieving. The hopes, fears, loves, and beliefs of our minds are just the outcome of accidental collocation of atoms. Isn't that encouraging this morning? Well, you take that logic to its conclusion, you're going to come to the same conclusion as Oliver Wendell Holmes, who, of course, was the, the very famous U.S. Supreme uh, Court Justice, a major intellectual who wrote these words. Scientifically, I see no reason for attributing to a man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. Secularism and scientific reasoning cannot ascribe humans' worth. In fact, Nietzsche, who of course is the famous atheist, he says these words. He says, he says another Christian concept, no less crazy. Now listen to what he's going to call crazy. Is the concept of equality of souls before God. This concept furnishes the prototype of all theories of equal rights. You see, these are non-Christians, and what are they saying? They're saying there are no grounds for humans to be ascribed worth or dignity apart from this so-called notion that Christians have of the image of God. If you look at history, while we have also failed in many occasions, and I don't want to put that aside, Christians have failed in this many times, but you look at the history of Christianity, Christians have been some of the most influential people in pursuing equality for all people. From the very beginning, you go back to the very beginning of the Christian church, and here's what you're going to see. These Christians entered into a Greco-Roman world in which there was severe poverty. There was a Greco-Roman world that was full of of slavery, that uh, was full of abortion, was full of, of killing infants, especially baby girls. They entered into a culture that if you were old or you were sick and you didn't have means to pay for it, you were just left on the street to die. This was the culture that Christianity entered into. And yet Christianity from the very beginning, because of this view of the image of God, were champions of life in all of its different forms. You look at it and they were champions of the unborn. From the very beginning, they were against abortion. This is not a new Christian concept, but they were not just one issue people either. You see, at the very same time, while they were going against abortion and speaking out against that, they were also speaking out against the killing of the elderly. They were also speaking about a killing of the the infants, those little girls that were just cast aside because they didn't see that they had any value. Christians from the very beginning were champions of the orphan. They were champions of the weak, the vulnerable. From the very beginning, Christians, because of the image of God, said, no, these people have value because they bear the image of our God. They put their culture to such a shame that all of a sudden the Western world began to incorporate their ideas. And that's why you have this idea of the image of God that really is prevalent in our culture today. If you want to look further, think about the modern civil rights movement. Where do you think that Martin Luther King Jr. got his inspiration well, we see it in his, one of his sermons called The American Dream. 
He says these words. You see, the founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the Imago Dei, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected, the ability to have fellowship with him. And this gives him a uniqueness, worth, and dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because every man is made in the image of God. I tell you all of that this morning to say the only grounds for human worth and dignity of equality of all these different things is this idea of the image of God. You say, I get it, Ryan, but why does this matter to me? What does this have to do with me? Well, friends, if this is true, if we are all made in God's image, then it should radically reshape how we see and treat one another. It should radically reshape how we see and treat the people around us. Here's the thing. The image of God should form how we view racial prejudice and racial injustice. We as God's people should be the first to stand up for those whose rights are taken and cast aside. The image of God should inform how we view abortion and euthanasia. These are two very important topics in our culture. The image of God should have a profound effect on how we view sex trafficking, what we do about that in the pornography industry. Let me just say this. We are absolutely crazy if we want to separate the growth in pornography use from the growth in molestation, abuse, and rape. When you take an image of a person, and you observe them in such a way that it strips their value and views them as objects not having souls to be consumed for your own pleasure. Friends, that is sin. I realize that in this room, there are probably many that are walking through this, many that are dealing with this. And I can just encourage you as your pastor, as a Christian brother, you've got to battle that sin. It does have an effect, whether you realize it or not. One thing history reveals is this. Where the image of God is not understood, it is the weak and vulnerable who are most often abused and consumed. At times in history, that's been children. At times, that's been elderly. At times, that's been minority groups. At times, that's been those with disabilities. And friends, in light of our, what we're going to be talking about, at many times in history, that has been women. There's a place in 1 Peter where the Apostle Peter refers to women as the weaker vessel. We'll probably talk about this at some point. That angers some women because they don't understand the context of what he's talking about. Peter's statement is not a statement about the gifts of women. It's not a statement about the intellect of women or the talents of women or the leadership skills of women. What Peter is saying is this. Where the image of God has been fractured, it is women that will most often bear the brunt of evil in the world. And that has been true over and over again. It is women who are most often consumed. It is women who are most often not valued. Which takes us back to the topic of this series. It is this foundational understanding of the image of God that is the reason we as Christians should absolutely work toward gender equality. Now, does that mean that there are no differences that should be seen and recognized? Of course not. We can be different and still be equal in the sight of God. But there is so much equality in our day, inequality. And we as Christians should lead the way in seeking 
equality. Because God sees women as just as valuable as men. We have equal dignity, equal worth, equal importance to him. Since this is true, then, there is a way in which men should view women, and there is a way in which women should view men from the lens of Scripture. Let me talk to men first. Men, it is absolutely imperative that you begin to think biblically about the women in your lives. It's important that you push against the stereotypes of women as mere sexual objects or servants put here for your pleasure or your comfort. Instead, we as men of God should be the first to build up the women in our lives, to treasure them, to cherish them, to see them as co-heirs of the kingdom, daughters of our king. We should give them as many opportunities as possible to exercise their gifts under God's beautiful design. We should lead the way in this, men. Ladies, let me just speak to you. It is so important. I cannot encourage you enough. Have high expectations for how the men in your life approach you and honor you. You must value yourself before God in such a way that you easily reject men, so-called men who desire your sexual company but will not honor your soul. In the same way, ladies, let me challenge you to think biblically about the men in your life. To push against the stereotypes of men as either idiot Neanderthals or evil authoritarians. If you watch sitcoms, is it not true that almost every main male character is nothing more than a high-functioning doofus? Think about all the sitcoms today. Think about the longest-running sitcom, The Simpsons. What do we know about Homer? Not exactly a genius, is he? Ladies, seek to honor and build up the men in your lives as brothers in Christ, as co-heirs, as sons of our King. The world may push one to see the opposite gender in a degrading way, but we know something the world does not, that we are equally made in the image of our God. Thus, we should treat each other in that way. As we close, the reality of sin in the world, the reality that we live in a fallen world means this, that the image that we bear is marred. It's tarnished. And the result is this, that we do not reflect God like we should, nor do we treat others as they deserve to be treated. In fact, there are probably many of you in this room have been treated as less than an image bearer of your God. Some of you may have been on the opposite side, hurting those around you. But friends, the answer to all of this, if we're going to move forward as a church, if we're going to reflect God like we're called to do, the answer is, is not to just try harder to say, here, let's, let's do this together and let's, let's try to do this on our own. The answer, like every other thing, is the gospel. That while we, sinful as we are, are not perfect image bearers, that Jesus, who was and is the perfect image of God, came and he lived a perfect life on our behalf. He came and he died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, so that we could begin to accurately reflect God again. So that we could be brought back into relationship with God, so that we could become his mirror again, reflecting to the world who he is, treating people as if they too are image bearers. All of that comes through the cross. I love Colossians 1, which says this, talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
Later, verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In order to reflect God, in order to image him correctly, you have to have a relationship with him. And this morning, the starting point is the gospel. The only way you can have a relationship is because of what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection. On the cross, he offers forgiveness of sins. He offers to bring you back into a relationship of God. But we have to accept that gift. We have to receive him, turn from our sin, and trust in him as our Lord and Savior. If you want to see people as image bearers, you have to have a different mind. You have to have a different heart. And only Jesus can create that. The closer we get to Jesus, the more we will see and reflect as his image bearers in our relationships around us. We're going to close this service with a time of response. And we're going to do that by taking the Lord's Supper together as a church family. When we take the Lord's Supper, it is a reminder. It's also a way that we proclaim what Jesus has done through his death and his resurrection. The cup represents his blood that was shed for our sin. Shed so that we could be brought back into relationship with God. The bread represents his body that was broken for us. Again, so that we could have a relationship with God. Church family, I'm going to give you some time to just pray this morning. Here's a prayer. It's important as we take communion together that we search our hearts for sin. And here's what I'm going to ask you this morning. Ask God, is there any way in which I have hurt others by by not accurately looking at them as image bearers of our God? Take a moment and confess that. Is there places where you have not honored people around you in your life, maybe your family, maybe in your workplace, maybe at your school, as if they are image bearers? Confess that this morning. Confess whatever other sin God brings to mind during this time of prayer. And then here in a moment, our deacons are going to come. They're going to pass out the elements as you guys are praying. Hold on to those elements, and we're going to take them together as a church family. If you're, not, if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, I would ask that you not take the Lord's Supper. It's set aside for Christians. But instead, think about what they represent. That Jesus died so that you could have a relationship with him. Our greatest prayer is that you would enter into that relationship. That you would reflect him again. Use this time for prayer. Our deacons are going to come pass out the elements and we'll take the Lord's Supper together here in a moment.